Hello, and thank you for listening to episode 3 of 60 Minutes With. I'm Dave, and I'm back with another interview show. And this week I'm going to be talking to a guy who was a uh, tour manager. Uh, he spent most of his time during the 70s and 80s doing that, uh, including working with such bands as Cockney Rebel, Duran Duran, Fleetwood Mac, The Grateful Dead, Wishbone Ash, uh, the list goes on. Uh, you're in for a treat because you're going to hear some great stories. Some of them include um, what a band um, threw <laughs> through a hotel window as an alternative to a television, uh, and also a good little story about polishing a spaceship. So make of that what you will. Uh, this guy has also got a fantastic website. I do gush about it at the end of the 60 minutes, and rightfully so, because trust me, it's a website that is worth going to. Um, you can go to uh, roadstories.co.uk. There's free content on there. There's also a premium service, and like I say at the end of the interview, for the price that it is, it beats any Black Friday deal that happened this weekend. So please sit back, relax, and enjoy as I spend 60 minutes with Richard Amos. Right, Richard, um, I think the first thing that the listeners would love to know, um, I'm sure they've heard of the term tour manager. Can you explain, please, what a tour manager is and what a tour manager does? Ah, okay. Um, a tour manager is hired normally by the band's management uh, to take the band on tour, be dad, so to speak, on tour, but uh, most importantly set up the production schedules for the tour in advance and the secret to doing a good job as a tour manager is the preparation before the tour and in the olden days so to speak in the 70s and early 80s a tour manager however large the tour was uh, was the guy in charge of hiring the sound company, the light company, the trucking. Um, when buses were introduced, um, buses and and transport in general. Um, also, uh, working closely with the travel agent to um, to organise all the, the flights, um, trains, hotels, etc., etc. So, in all. Um, an organiser that uh, sets up everything necessary uh, in advance that is needed to do a tour. In, in, later, in later years, in the mid-80s really, the production manager or the, uh, became um, an important part of uh, a slightly larger organisation mm -hmm. uh, and took over a lot of the technical roles. Yeah. Uh, that a tour manager used to do. The tour manager also used to um, do the settlements with the promoters at the end of the gig, so look after the money, run the uh, the accounts um, for the tour, and um, and most importantly, I suppose, on tour, travelled with the band uh, wherever they went and organised their daily schedule or schedule. Wow. I mean, that's a hell of a lot of work right from the off from when you first get note of, okay, you're going to be the tour manager for this band on this tour. How much, how far in advance normally, let's go back say into the 70s, how far in advance before the tour started would you have to start work on that tour? It was a lot less time back then 
than it is now. Um, and that's really mainly because the, the tour or the touring schedules nowadays get, you see shows that are going to go, go on sale now for next October. Yeah. For some of the big bands. You didn't used to see that in, in, in the 70s. It was always about three months in advance. Sometimes um, even closer than that. Um, but uh, depending on the popularity and the rise, so to speak, of the act, uh, it brings to mind Duran Duran in America when we were um, we were touring around, for, I think for their second time, it was my first time with them, um, around fairly large clubs, but nothing bigger than that, mm -hmm. when... Um, they started to have a lot of radio play, and then all of a sudden, um, there was a lot of demand by the American promoters, and so we were literally uh, booking shows while we're on the road. Um, and that was literally w one month ahead of time, so to speak. But generally, back to your question, in the 70s, we'd be booking about two months yeah two months ahead um in a in a live schedule and then um and then setting up soon as we knew um what used to happen because it was fly by the pants sort of uh scenario in the 70s you didn't have <laughs> sleeper buses which became a very very important factor in in um in heavy duty touring really um, before sleeper buses, um, crews had to get from one show to the other, obviously. Yeah. But uh, they needed sleep between the two. <laughs> so in, back in those days, you couldn't do uh, Brighton to Glasgow back to back because you couldn't, you couldn't physically get there. Yeah, of course. Um, whereas now with uh, sleeper buses the crew you know jump on the bus at midnight if they're good boys uh, they're in bed tucked up <laughs> and they're woken up again at uh, nine ten in the morning um uh, in glasgow um obviously in the 70s that, that couldn't happen so the tour manager and the agent who was who booked the shows for the band uh, or for the bands uh, worked very closely with the tour manager in uh, making sure that physically and practically one could get from one place to an uh, to the other. Yeah, and, you know, there's a, there's an old saying of, of tour managers. I think that um, we think most agents actually um, are uh, blind. They actually do book dates with the dartboard. <laughs> Um, you know, and you look at a schedule even now, and you're going, "Why are they going? You know, why are they going Brighton, Glasgow, and then back to Bournemouth?" Yeah. I, I, I to this day, Dave, I don't know why. <laughs> it's weird, isn't it? It's weird. <laughs> it's called dyslexia or <laughs> or laziness. <laughs> You mentioned as well, you know, when you were out on the road with Duran Duran then and they got they were getting more popular as you were out on the road with them. This, of course, for anybody listening that may be of a certain age and they're younger than both myself and Richard, this was like pre-internet. So 
how was the logistics of that off? Was it like all phone calls then, was it? Everything was by phone. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, yes. <laughs> no mobile phones. Yeah, exactly. Uh, no computers. Um, there was the telex, but the telex was really used for international purposes and you could only find telexes in major hotels or um, in the offices of uh, the big agencies, so to speak, mm -hmm. promoters, but um, no, by telephone. Um, yeah, the whole thing, uh, either by telephone or if one was lucky enough to be based, I was based in London through the 70s and 80s, um, and I worked for the most part for UK acts. And so their agents were London based. And quite often the uh, production companies were London based. So one could actually do logistically, and the travel agent was based in London as well. So it was face to face. Yeah. Um, and it, the, yes, as long as you had enough time, it was face-to-face -face meetings around a table uh, with a with pen and paper, really, and uh, and just uh, bashing things out that way. <laughs> the telephone really came into its own once you were on the road, and uh, and uh, yeah, the hotel room telephone bill was. <laughs> More often than not, more expensive than room itself. Oh no! I've got, I've got to ask: Have you ever, during the years when you're on the road with bands, have you ever seen the classic a TV thrown from the hotel window? Um, <laughs> no, but something does come to mind. <laughs> oh right, I'm intrigued now. <laughs> um, the only, uh, yeah, the only projectiles I can actually recall um, was uh, on a Cockney Rebel tour. And um, I had a very bizarre job before I joined the music business, um, working for a, a Chingford, North London-based company called London Rubber Company. Yeah. And uh, they were manufacturers of, uh, of rubber products, um, most famously um, Durex <laughs> and Marigold Rubber Gloves. <laughs> and for overseas people listening, um, Durex was the prophylactic of choice for the um, <laughs> for the gentlemen of the UK in these days. Um, and working for them as I, I worked for them as a management trainee. So as part of that two-year or eighteen-month um, time with them, I was a merchandiser. And I collected quite a lot of free samples during my <laughs> period with them. Um, flash forward to Cockney Rebel, and um, I've got a few Jurex in my suitcase. And it's after a show in a Holiday Inn. And I'm, I'm not sure whether it was Plymouth or Bristol, but it was one of those two. And we were in a suite after the show, having a few drinks, as one usually did. Um, I don't know how it happened, but Jurex were brought out and a large, rather a large amount of water pour, poured into them <laughs> to become a water balloon. And then um, a couple of the band started chucking them out the window. <laughs> they, were, they, were, <laughs> they were landing in the flower beds 
at the front of the hotel and about 10 minutes after this this started i got a phone call from reception going Mr. James, um i've got to tell you um i believe some of your parties are throwing it's throwing mud out the window <laughs> we've had several people come in covered in mud <laughs> right do you really think people would throw mud out of a window? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yes, that was the, um, that's the projectile I've... Um... You could have offered them the marigolds then to clean themselves up with, couldn't you? <laughs> yeah. how, how did you get then? What was the progression from working at this rubber company to, like for your first tour as a road manager what happened in between to give you that transition well uh mm, i very early on in the uh, the management um uh trainee uh cycle uh, i met a chap in the canteen uh with hair down past his shoulders he was working them in the labs in the in the company uh, by the name of john crocker and um as we started getting to know each other, we were of a similar age, and we were probably one of the youngest um, couple of guys in the factory at, at that time. John was uh, a folk musician sleeping on someone's sofa in a in a block of flats quite near the uh, the, uh, the factory, and this was his day job. And I, as I said, was a management trainee. Um, living in digs that um, I've got, uh, I'd found before moving from my hometown in Oxford at the end of my school, my final school year, uh, to my, this first uh, first job. And I was looking to move out of the digs. John was looking to move off of the sofa, so we decided to share, um, look for a, a flat together, and we ended up sharing a single room above a woman's hairdressers in Walthamstow. And one of his muso friends crashed out one night and I met him, his name was Steve. His name was Steve Nice and he changed his name to Steve Harley. Ah, okay. Uh, Steve Harley and John Crocker, who created Cockney Ribble. And I, as John's best friend at the time, and, and to this day as well, um, used to hang around you know there's always a guy that hung around with the players and um i watched the band um or being auditioned to the point of a record deal i used to go down in the evenings and watch rehearsals and stuff and uh when they got given uh a record deal with emi it was at the end of my management trainee course and I decided to take a year off, take off the suit and tie, mm -hmm. put on the jeans and T-shirt, because they offered me a full-time job as the road manager for, uh, i.e. the roadie, for, um, for the band, for as much money as I was earning at London Rubber at the time, which was 15 quid a week. Wow. And, uh, in fact, they, they offered more. I got offered... Well, I got paid by Cotton Mill fifteen pounds a week and five pounds a gig. So on a good week, I was um, yes, I was, I was uh, earning quite a nice little lump for nineteen seventy four. Yeah, definitely. 
and and that's how it all kicked off really and um i didn't go back after a year it um it it launched me into the live music scene and i um i just uh went forward from there so cool you were then at the start obviously then like you said with cockney rebel and you saw them just rise and rise like they did all through the 70s yes that must have been such such an exciting time then absolutely it was um it was yeah it was it was uh, it was crazy it was it was it was the the ultimate sort of freedom um that i is what i recall as a uh, looking back now uh of being free as a bird really and just uh and every time you went out to earn money you went to a place where everyone was having fun uh you know out for a good time and um i was one of the few in the room getting paid <laughs> <laughs> Happy days. That's a win-win situation, if ever there was one. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, I started as uh, the roadie and the sound engineer. And um, fortunately, the group got quite popular quite quickly, uh, needing um, really a tour manager. And so uh, we got in a proper sound engineer. I I joined the band as the uh, as the tour manager and. Um, and it it went from there really. I just uh, I was very fortunate because at the same time I somehow got involved with Harvey Goldsmith, and Harvey took me under his wing and used to hire me for one-off events. And uh, through working with Harvey Goldsmith in London, when I wasn't working with Cockney Rebel. Um, I got my name about, and um, and more and more things uh, and opportunities came my way. It was um, yeah, very fortunate. I mean, because you've worked with such a hell of a lot of bands and artists, have you ever been? I was going to say intimidated, but that's the wrong word. Have you ever been awestruck by anybody when you've met them, even though you're in the business? Has anybody had that effect on you? Only once. Um, <laughs> only once. It, it was fleeting in a way because. Uh, it's very hard to describe, but when you are one of them, so to speak, mm-hmm. um, it, there is a comfort zone. Um, but the, the, I, I was hired by uh, Harvey Goldsmith to um, help tour manage a, a Wings tour. In fact, it's supposed to be a Wings World tour. And um, I remember getting introduced to Paul McCartney uh, at the Rainbow Theatre where they were using uh, for rehearsals and that was um that was uh, probably the most nervous i'd uh, i'd ever been in front of someone that uh, i got to know a little bit and um he and linda were, were very nice and very nice and kind to me it must be good in situations like that as well, you know, when you've you meet somebody who's so big within the business and and they are really nice because there's you know I'm sure that the opposite, and I'm not going to ask you to name names, but I'm sure there's been the opposite at times when people haven't been quite so nice to you, surely. Um, very fortunate. Um, very fortunately, there's only a couple that um, come to mind, really, over a 30, 40-year 30, um, period. Um, no, I've been really lucky, actually, with the people I've worked with. And I think, you're right to say, for the most part, most people in the, in the business are nice, and um, 
and down to earth and normal. Mm-hmm. They 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 just got a strange job where um, you know certain part of the day they're in the spotlight. Yeah, I know. Like we've we've gone like from the early seventies with Cockney Rebel, and you're with them. Well, right, right the way through the seventies. Um, what was the next band then that that you had to do a lot of work with as a roads manager after Cockney Rebel, and while you were still with Cockney Rebel? Um, the next band I actually worked with, or the first band I worked with after during Cockney Rebel, uh, I wasn't actually the road manager. I was the um, the assistant to the road manager uh, with Wishbone Ash. And I got offered a job um, as basically the baggage boy for an American tour uh, through Miles Copeland, and who was managing Wishbone Ash at the time. But um, and that was amazing. Yeah, that, that was because they were my schoolboy heroes. So here I here I am getting paid to look after my schoolboy heroes, um, which was uh, an amazing buzz. Apart from the fact that I just loved the music as well. Um, but as a road manager, I suppose I think the Fleetwood Mac Rumors tour is probably the the uh, the, the big one. Uh, while still with Cockney Rebel, although I think I'd possibly just I just started moving away from working full time for them uh, in '77, and uh, I got asked by Barry Dickens, who um, is still a promoter and an agent, um, but uh, but he headed uh, a big agency called MAM M-A-M, who bought. Fleetwood Mac into the UK and promoted the uh, the original Rumours tour of the UK. And uh, yeah, it was my job to then they had they had their own tour manager because uh, they were based in America anyway. But an English guy called John Courage uh, that I was in charge of making sure every show was up um, up and running and uh, everything they needed got got done. I mean, that's a hell of a big tour as well. There must have been so much to organise on it. Um, it was, in those early days, it was theatres for the most part. We were playing theatres or cinemas, so like the Hammersmith Odeon, um, the Birmingham Odeon as it was then, and uh, Newcastle City Hall. Um, so two, 3,000 capacity venues. They didn't have anything in them, so everything was brought in. Um, it was the first. It was the first time um, that tours were using Arctic trailers and having lighting uh, systems put into buildings, so yeah. um, as well as the sound systems and, and all the stage gear. So. The venues had a, a certain amount of uh, of infrastructure. I mean, they had rooms for dressing rooms, but you had to you had to put stuff into the or organise putting stuff into the dressing rooms. Uh, they had the electricity, but you had to organise electricians to uh, connect everything together for for the group. 
Um, you had parking to arrange because you had these big trucks parking in city centres. Um, and then uh, you had catering to sometimes to organise uh, if they weren't travelling with their own caterers. So it was, um, there was a list that, you know, that you ticked off and it was a pretty common list that, um, that went through the seventies playing these sorts of venues. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and as the venues get larger, the list just changes, uh, you know, a little bit. Mm. Uh, and normally a, a few more people are involved than, than, um, in smaller venues. You mentioned catering then as well, just following on from that a bit. We've all heard um, stories about some band's rider, the infamous rider list, and there's all these weird stories of different things that bands demand and so on. And again, you know, I, you don't have to say any artist's name, but what's the weirdest thing or things that bands have put onto the rider that you know of? <laughs> um, there isn't any, really. Really? Oh, I'm, I'm having visions of there has to be a zebra with a dress on and, and you know, this old smarties with all the orange ones taken out and all this kind of thing. Yeah, I think that's all been grown a bit, a bit out, of, out of proportion, really. <laughs> <laughs> I hate to uh, disillusion you here, Dave, but um, no, with the big artists that I've worked in uh, from a promotion uh, promoter's point of view, nothing really sort of um, comes to mind. Um, the funniest thing I've ever been asked uh, was on that Rumours Fleetwood Mac tour, um, which did sort of throw me slightly, um, and it was up the first show, and John Courage came up to me and said, uh, uh, just before soundcheck, he said, Richard, can you organise them? Um, Mick needs um, a couple of pairs of extra long black ballet tights. <laughs> And I couldn't quite believe what he was asking. And, and uh, obviously in the back of my mind, I'm going, where the hell am I going to do <laughs> in Birmingham? Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and um, the gods were looking down on me, I tell you, because uh, actually if you, and the, he, he wore them during the show. And, and I think if you look at the Rumours album sleeve, he's in them. Uh, posing on the front cover oh that's brilliant <laughs> and uh i walked out to um i walked out of the backstage of the uh Birmingham odin up towards the um what's the the famous roundabout um the boring yeah and i'm going going to go to the boring and just ask you know where maybe i could get something like this i don't know a, a debenhams or a Hell, you know, what shall I go? Anyway, I'm I'm stood on the on the road, in the cold, looking across the roundabout, and I tell no lie, opposite, I'm staring at a ballet shop. Oh my word! <laughs> and I walk round the roundabout into the ballet shop, and um, buy two pairs of extra long. Black <laughs> uh, happy days. Uh, yeah. So um, so I walked back and um, mission accomplished. And I thought it was going to be a lot harder than that. <laughs> well, that just shows how damn good you are at your job, Richard, doesn't it? <laughs> I don't know. It's fate, Dave. 
It was just a lucky day. <laughs> Definitely a lucky day. Yeah. Oh. So you're in Birmingham, you've travelled the UK, obviously. Um, where's the, some of the favourite places that you visited in the world then with the job? It's obviously taken you in a lot of different places. Where are some of the best places that you've been to? And for what reason when you've been there? Uh, okay. Um, uh, were you talking on the, in the early days? Anytime, anytime at all. I've had a couple of really, really nice off-the-wall... Um, I mean, recently I, I've actually... I'm semi-retired now, but I, I still do go out and do some special projects. And in 2011, I was asked uh, to be world tour director for a couple of really big Japanese bands. And so I got to go to Shanghai a couple of times. Oh, lovely. And um, as well as Japan. And um, Shanghai was um, an incredibly interesting place. Uh, it's just growing so quickly it's it was uh, it, yeah it was fascinating mm. back in the early days one of the strangest if not the strangest place i've ever done a gig was uh working for the grateful dead and being asked to get all their production uh to the great pyramids in cairo in egypt Whoa, my. the <laughs> shows they did in front of the pyramids there and so I ended up, uh, yeah, um, camped next to the, um, in a fantastic hotel. I've got to recommend to anyone who goes to Egypt, the Mina House Hotel, um, right next to the Great Pyramid. And uh, got to camp, camp in there for three weeks, um, setting up those three shows back in uh, six, September in 1978. And another weird one I got asked to do which never came off, um, was I got asked to organise a intercontinental, uh, no, a continental tour of South America for Richie Blackmore's Rainbow. And it was the, it wasn't the first time a band had ever been down there because the likes of Yes, um, and had been down there, and I think Zeppelin had also been down there. But I'm talking 1977. Yeah. And um, yeah, I got the the job of going down there and setting it all up, this Richie Blackmore Continental Tour. So I went around the whole of South America, getting met by each promoter in each uh, capital city, checking out the production, figuring out how we're going to do, you know, Argentina, Brazil to Uruguay to to Chile, to Argentina, and, and, and rooting it and, and setting that whole thing up. And um, as we discussed earlier, there wasn't anything uh, like laptops or mobile phones. So it was um, it was quite a slow process. Yeah. I ended up over there for about a month, five weeks, just, just setting the whole thing up. Um, and then I came back, having set it all up, and uh, things like... Okay, for the Uruguayan show, we're going to bring the production from Brazil. For the Chile show, we'll take production from Argentina up, uh, across to Santiago, uh, and things like that. And uh, I got I got back and laid out my plans. And then they said, "Could you just move it a month?" Oh no! <laughs> As if it would be that easy. <laughs> it just shift everything along. That's sort of what I said, though. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and 
so the telex machine became my best friend for the next week while you're trying to reschedule all these all these and we were you know they was being we were playing either large arenas tennis courts or, or football fields football stadiums um because deep purple had been huge down there in the 70s and richie blackmore rightfully you know um as the main uh, main lead guitar player was um was also huge down there and so yeah i managed to by telex just change the whole routine and then in the end they they cancelled it altogether um oh, no. they, yeah it, they thought it was too close to their north american tour and they got scared in actual fact they they were a bit uh worried um just uh with all the politics and you know that go on down there and everything and yeah um and they they thought it was too risky so I don't know whether they actually tried to get insurance or whatever, but uh, in the end, it all got canned. But um, very interesting time from my, my point of view. Uh, given quite a lot of responsibility at the uh, ripe old age of 24, I think I was. Oh, wow, yeah. God, that's a hell of a lot of responsibility. And, uh, yeah, and, and, and meet, uh, yeah, going around some fantastic countries, meeting some uh, very interesting people and, and uh, I've got to say that, that, you know, everyone down there at the time, it was very, very early days for them to be putting on these sorts of big shows. And, and it was interesting being a part of it back then. Did that happen? Well, I'm hoping it didn't happen too often where you'd put all this, you know, all the pre-production work into it and then it was cancelled. No, only a couple of times. The Grateful Dead one was, uh, was cancelled, actually. I got hired originally by them to set up a European tour and um which i did uh, but uh just before or as i was setting it up they said we're going to play in, in egypt so can you get all the production we're going to use in europe to the pyramids and it was when i got the production to the pyramids and they flew in that they said that we're not actually going to do the european tour oh. so yeah we booked everything you know we've got out hotels and the whole kit and caboodle organized for a European tour and um, I'm staring as I speak to you actually on my wall is a, uh, a huge poster I've got of the Grateful Dead European tour 1978 <laughs> and, uh, it's, it's a poster Harvey Goldsmith made up because he was the promoter for London and they were supposed to play three three nights at the Rainbow Theatre and uh uh, they never, they, they never came over to do them. Oh no! It was all blown. <laughs> <laughs> and when, when you're out on the road with these bands as well, what, what sort of time limit? Because we always think, you know, bands come in, they do the gig, then you've got to travel to the next one, you've got to set it all up. There must be a lot of time where you don't have the time to see where the gig is, but you've got time to fill in between the gigs. It must get Although we see, you know, we think it's all it's all glitz and glamour. It must get quite boring at times too, surely. Um, I don't think you have time to get bored. Uh, uh, to be quite honest, uh, it's um, rest days are just are, are, are literally at, at that. And uh, you know, I recall in America, my favourite my favourite uh, pastime when when I had a day off wasn't particularly to go out and try and um, look around a, a town or a city 
Um, I'd much prefer to just order room service and watch American football games. And... <laughs> that sounds good to me. <laughs> <laughs> just do- and doze. And just, yeah, and, and, um, and just, uh, you know, recharge the batteries. Really. Yeah. So, uh, no, no, it's, I think, um, I think when you've got, I've done it recently, I did a, a world tour for, with Supertramp and we were fortunate enough to have our own private jet. So having our own jet enabled us not to have to travel each day, which meant that one could base oneself in um, a city and then fly off and fly back each, each show day, which then allowed you time in a place to, um, you know, to um, get to know it a little bit better. And yeah. we, we spent... Um, we spent, you know, over a couple of weeks in Paris for, in, for the European tour, and in Canada we spent ten days in Vancouver and ten days in Toronto. So it was, um, yeah, on a day off you could have a good look around, go go around, you know, a couple of museums, uh, walk around some parks, and, and that sort of stuff. I mean, just those, those two words, private jet. I mean, they. Going back to you when you were working for the uh, London Rubber, that you know, if you could give yourself some information from then to now, it must have been so weird to, to, to go from that, and then here you are on this private jet that you know most people just sort of dream of even seeing. Never mind going on. It's uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's incredible, isn't it, when you look back on it? No, I, I, absolutely, and um, yeah, it's interesting in the pub, and there's you know you you come back home and. You're chatting in the pub and uh, okay, how did it go, Richard? And, then, and you just say, well, first thing I have to do um, is uh, have a bit of breakfast and then call the pilot and tell them what time I'll take off. <laughs> Dave, someone's got to do it. Yes, and why not? It may as well be you, Richard. Why not? <laughs> um, it does have its own set of um, of of. Of problems, though, you, 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 one would think, you know, um, from a travel point of view, it's wonderful. Um, yeah. It saves it saves you an awful lot of um, stress and um, and travelling. But uh, it has its own little um, idiosyncrasies because, um, unlike uh, commercial aircraft who have slots in in um, in airports, and you read. You know, you read about BA or Virgin Airlines swapping slots and, and sometimes for millions of pounds uh, to be able to be guaranteed a takeoff and a landing slot. Yeah. A private jet, though, takes off and lands at the same airports but does not have those slots. So it's a bit nerve-wracking sometimes. <laughs> um, um, having to find out in advance um, that one can take off, (laughs) (laughs) one can land. And um, especially in the evenings, in the evenings after a show, if you want to fly back, um, you know, can you take off at 11 o'clock at night from wherever you're doing the show? And and will the airport still be open where you're flying back to? Oh, yeah. So so the logistics of a private uh, jet are... Yeah, have it have their own 
certain limitations to a certain extent. You'd think it was, you know, completely art, whatever you want, sir, but it, it, it's not actually the case sometimes. And, um, and it was, um, yeah, you have to be careful where you base yourself, really, because uh, some airports, you just, you, if, if the private jet uh, control people can't guarantee you a, a, a departure time, then um, avoid that air, airfield because, um, you know, you won't make the gig. Well, has there ever been any close calls due to that happening? Uh, Although yeah. I'm, sure, I'm sure, I was going to say, I'm sure you're far uh, too yes. organised <laughs> to make that happen. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, yes. I mean, um, one tries, one tries to um, organise that sort of travel um, with the fact that you've got, you know, limousines picking you up at x x time after one o'clock in the afternoon and. And so it's everything's very precise, you know, mm. or one tries to get it very precise. So there's no hanging around anywhere. And um, and when you get uh, strikes, we were based in Paris, and we had there's a couple of times they went on strike, and uh, yeah, we were sat in the lounge for an hour, hour and a half, um, sweating, you know, sweating it out that we'd um, that we'd be able to take off. Uh, but um, Hey-ho. Luckily yeah. you did. Luckily you did. Good. Well, there's two. I've got two artists I have to ask you about, and the first one is one of my all-time favourite bands, ELO. Now, you worked with ELO in the 70s. I mean, and they put on a hell of a stage show then, that's for sure. Um, yes, at the time, I actually... I, I, I was up on the periphery of this. I was... Um, I was actually uh, on the U.S. segment of the ELO spaceship tour, as it's probably uh, known. Yeah. Um, this the spaceship built in Britain, um, uh, built by uh, the production company that uh, took them around the world, uh, a company called Tasco, uh, based in London. Um, and uh, it was the... Sharon Osborne's dad was managing them at the time. Oh, okay. Um, and he wanted a production that sort of tied in with the album and the album artwork, and so they ended up deciding to uh, to build this uh, yeah this spaceship. And uh, did you see it? I didn't, unfortunately. I mean, I I loved the band at that time. I think I got into ELO about. 77 did you see did you see the gig recently at Hyde Park I didn't know I wanted to go and I couldn't get down there oh it was simulcast on the internet it was amazing oh I mean I've seen yeah I've seen the footage of it online but you know I so I would so have loved to have been there and see them live it's it's one of those bands that I I have to see live before I die I really have to (laughs) well I mean with a bit of luck he'll he'll be touring that again I would imagine but but yes uh I was um I digressed really. I was uh, I was actually uh, out in America, looking, um, doing some research into merchandising. Um, I had uh, been given the opportunity to set up a big merchandising company um, in the UK to service Europe, uh, because it was all very itty bitty uh, at 
in the mid 70s and there was a formulation of 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 a couple of companies in america uh because it was such big business hmm. and i got uh, through harvey goldsmith um, who was a partner in one of the big companies in america called brocken um, I got the opportunity to go on the road for a couple of weeks to see how it was really done, big time. And uh, so I started off on the first day of the Yellow Tour and, and, and sat with it for two weeks. And um, the shows themselves were fantastic. Um, the, the the staging took uh, they had to they had to start I think at midnight. Uh, a midnight load-in, which was pretty pretty tight, even in those days. It might have even taken two days. I can't yeah. remember now to put to build this this uh, this spaceship inside the arena. Oh my! Um, it sat there. It sat there before the show started, looking like a huge McDonald's hamburger. <laughs> and as the light went down, the top half st- um, r- rose up on chain hoists. And then the band appeared through the floor, through lifts, onto the centre of the uh, centre of the bottom section of the burger, so to speak, uh, with lights and lasers and, and all that good stuff. Um, I actually require to tell you a funny story about uh, this spaceship because I I recently actually for another project I'm doing um, I'm um, I'm interviewing some of the original people that started UK production companies in the early 70s. And one of the guys I interviewed was the guy that set up Tasco. And I reminded him um, about the spaceship tour, and he told me a very funny story about the American tour there. And there was this uh, there's one guy who was in charge of keeping the spaceship clean. <laughs> and so... Every day in America, pretty much, um, he'd have to go to a hardware store somewhere and buy a complete box of pledge spray, you know, spray polish. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so, probably the guy at the, uh, the store would say, well, why do you need so much polish? <laughs> and his reply was, clean my spaceship. <laughs> I wish I could have been a fly on the wall. Oh, yeah. Oh, well. <laughs> I bet he got some good responses back to that one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, that's good. <laughs> yeah, it's not, it's not very often you're going to hear that, is it? <laughs> you're going to clean your spaceship. Yeah, back in, you know, back in his hometown, uh, how did your job go? He says, oh, you know, you just clean my spaceship every day. <laughs> It was, it was a sight to behold. It was huge. It was actually huge. Oh it, yeah. It was I mean, just from, well. just from just from the videos, it just looks so spectacular. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Uh, the other artist I've got to ask you as well, um, because I was lucky enough uh, a few months ago to see Kate Bush, who returned to the stage after a long, long break. Um, Hang on a sec, Dave. Dave. Yeah. Yes. I, I'm just I'm just remembering another just story about ELO. Which, yeah. Sure. Yeah. Which, go on which is quite interesting. So I'm on the merchandising team, the official merchandising team. And as I said, it's it's big business over there. And uh, 
here's a problem you don't th you, you don't think in fact it probably wouldn't be a problem in Europe but it was definitely a problem in America and that was um, banking the money ah of course yeah so every night we you know I don't know it's twenty thousand dollars or more was was taken in cash and um, if it was a weekend by the end of the weekend you'd have you know up to sixty thousand dollars to um, to bank to get in the banking system and in America uh, you couldn't bank more than ten thousand dollars in any bank without filling out a yard of forms <laughs> and you just didn't have the time on the road to get to the next gig blah 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 to to go through that whole process so what they used to do was bank ten thousand dollars in six banks rather than one bank with sixty thousand dollars and i'll never uh, forget this one afternoon or yes yeah, lunchtime in this little bank on a on a supermarket in a mile somewhere and uh we went in and just put ten thousand pounds with the slip the paying in slip and um they said could you just wait please sir and could you just wait a, a bit longer sir and 10 15 minutes later the fbi walked in oh, <laughs> <no>. <laughs> <laughs> and and took us into the back room of the bank and started um, asking all these questions. They thought we were money laundering. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I didn't have, I didn't have, um, yeah, it was very bizarre. Oh. <laughs> Luckily, you managed to talk your way out of that one. <laughs> That's... Yeah, yeah, they believed us. Thank goodness. Oh. Because, yeah, it must have looked so strange though from the outside looking in. Well, you know, ten thousand here, ten thousand there, but it just shows, doesn't it, how different it was back then as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything's uh, a little bit long, more long-winded. Oh yeah, a lot longer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was I was mentioning Kate Bush. Um, I got to see her, and of course, the last time she was on stage was in nineteen seventy-nine. Yes. Um, please tell me to any stories you can about the the time there with Kate Bush. Um. Where did one begin, really? <laughs> it was, it was a, it was a, it was an extraordinary tour for me, um, for a couple of reasons. Um, I think the main the main reason was the camaraderie of uh, of everyone involved and uh, everyone sort of. Uh, uh, wanting to make it as big a success for Kate as as one could, and the whole crew and the whole uh, band party. There was about twenty crew and twenty in the band party. Uh, we obviously travelled separately, but came together each day, or, or yeah, pretty much each day to do a show. And there was this amazing family family feel about it and I think yeah, it came from Kate because uh, she was surrounded by her family on that tour as well uh, mum and dad were very often out um, on the road with us along with her two brothers um, one Paddy who was in the band and, and John who was a business 
management part of the team. Um, it took an extraordinary amount of time setting it up. Uh, not from my perspective per, per se. Uh, it was quite easy from my point of view. Uh, I introduced her to a sound company and to the sound engineer that went on to do the, the tour. Um, taking Kate and her, one of her brothers to the Hammersmith Odeon, I remember, to listen to a sound system that uh, had been in there the previous night for a Nazareth concert, of all things. Oh, OK. But it was, um, it was a, at that time, a very um, up-to-date, crisp sound system um, run by a company called ML Executives, and it was, it was the crew from The Who... Um, who built up a production company based out at Shepparton Studios, and they had some uh, some really great kit, basically um, mm. in the sound system, and um, and then there was uh, a very long uh, two week dress production and dress rehearsal period where we rented the Rainbow Theatre in Finsbury Park and set up the whole thing there and uh, just went through it time after time after time. Um, Kate, having rehearsed the band previously, um, rehearsed her dances in separate um, separate rehearsal facilities, and it all coming together at the Rainbow. Um, and I think that long rehearsal period uh, was fairly unique um, because, especially today, it gets very expensive having 40 people, you know, um, working every day. Yeah. Uh, whether you're travelling or not. But um, it was uh, the it was just because the show at that time was so theatrical uh, and different, there were a variety of different um, things we had to overcome. Uh, one being the capability of Kate to sing and dance at the same time. Yeah. And one of the great things coming out of that tour was the first time that a, a headset was ever used live, apart from in a TV studio. Mm. Um, and that was developed by this sound company with some help from some... Um, some other uh, Scottish sound texts from, from Edinburgh. But uh, the other more sombre reason for my um, recollection of this tour was the, uh, the death of our lighting designer, Billy Duffield, who was a, a dear friend of mine. And uh, we called him very, very late in the day in onto the team to because uh, he was he was Cockney Rebels lighting designer he was Peter Gabriel's lighting designer he was free at the time and we had an issue in rehearsals of timing and getting the lights uh, on time and he um, I got him in and uh, he pulled the whole thing together and then um, very very unfortunately um, did himself. Uh, did himself in a grave 
Well, he fell 20 foot down onto his head at the very first show. Oh, no. Um, yeah, and lived for about five days on a life support machine uh, before passing away. So, so yeah, uh, that was, again, I mean, you can imagine that all 40 of us were just just numb. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, and... Uh, I think we, you know, we we basically all pulled pulled to, together to um to pull off a, a just a, a very very famous um, piece of rock history really in uh, in a theatrical 1977 uh, Kate Bush European tour. Yeah, and it is it is like you say it is a, a piece of rock history most definitely. <laughs> Uh, that one of the, the the bad things about this show is time goes by so quickly, and I'm just looking now. We've got about five minutes left. What I want to do is, I mentioned it in the introduction to this show, the your website Road Stories. Um, I I've got to say this is an absolutely superb website. The way that it's laid out, the the stories that you tell, you've got the audio, you've got video, you've got photographs, and you can zoom into the photographs. Um, when did when did this website site start? And obviously, it's still ongoing as well because the the content is just it seems endless. <laughs> you can't go on this website for ten minutes because trust me, you'll end up on this website for like two hours. There's so much to to see and listen to and to do. It's it, it is. I, I I feel like I'm bigging it up and bigging it up just because you're on on the show now. But really, Richard, believe me, that it is a fantastic website. So please tell tell me and the listeners when it started and. Um, a, a bit of a story about road stories. Oh, thank you very much, Dave. Those kind words. Um, I wanted to, uh, I wanted to write uh, uh, an autobiography of the seventies and eighties um, from my perspective as a tour manager, and I didn't want to do the general book. Uh, I thought if I could try with the internet going the way it was to create some sort of um, more interactive musical side to it um, uh, that I'd have a go at uh, creating a, a multimedia website. So I started off with a program uh, on my Apple computer called iWeb, which very, um, unfortunately they don't, they don't do anymore. But I, have you ever used iWeb? I haven't, no, no. Uh, so, it's a um, it's a very clever bit of kit, really, because what it enabled me to do um, in just setting up initially this whole concept of a of a multimedia website was it allowed you to just create um, uh, a web page, and it was a drag and drop system. So you could literally drag um, an icon, a photograph. And very cleverly, you could actually angle it, so you didn't have to put things in columns. You could just spread them across a page like a scrapbook. And yeah. I, I, I love this whole concept of a scrapbook. And then within the scrapbook, oh look, there's a story and an audio file there. And so I, I sort of built it a bit like we were talking earlier about mist, you know, and just the interactivity of a web page. Mm -hmm. And so, and. Um, but the problem was with iWeb, because um, I got it up and running, and it worked perfectly on Apple computers. 
but it didn't work on it um, particularly well on an iPad. Didn't work on a phone, and it definitely didn't work very well on PCs. <laughs> so, so I started discussing with a variety of different web designers um, how I could replicate this concept that I'd come up with of a scrapbook sort of vibe for the pages. And uh, a bunch of guys, young guys here in um, Taunton, where I'm based, um, came up with a great back end that let me build the pages, but I could put stuff where I wanted within the page. It still is a column, it still is three columns, so to speak, but it allowed me to put audio there or there. It allowed me to put pictures there or there. It allowed me to create a, I don't know, a, a library or a, a photo album that would blow out of the out of the screen, so to speak. So, I could show people um, the original itineraries. Um, you could you could you know you could flick through the weeks of a specific tour and just see how an itinerary was laid out and and where where we how we how we travelled, where we stayed, and, and and the whole ethos of what a tour manager you know, sets up and, and, and does. And, uh, you know, with YouTube being as amazing as it is nowadays, um, I couldn't believe how many of the actual concerts I'd done or the tours that I'd done, um, uh, someone had filmed a show or a part of a show. Um, and uh, so I could, uh, I could add those in and... Um, and give the, you know a whole feel of the uh, of the tour as it was then. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. That adds so much to it, doesn't it? And so, yeah. So the whole ethos is is being able to uh, recollect the music and um, listen to me burbling on a, a little bit about this particular tour, this particular week, this particular set of photos, and. Um, and I didn't realise actually how much of a of, of a squirrel I was in squirrel. <laughs> <laughs> All the itineraries and uh, and photos and stuff. I, 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 you know, and diaries. I suppose the main thing was it all started originally because I wanted to know how far I'd travelled, and I had this thing: how many times, you know, how many miles have I done? So I started an Excel sheet of, of, of 73 to 86. And then I started writing down from my diaries, because I've kept a diary the whole time, and, and kept the itineraries of where I was when. So I, I ended up creating a 14-year um, workbook that I then could, um, I could uh, check the mileage between each city across yeah. the year. And... Um, and it went from there, really, because the, as I was looking through them, I'd recollected this story or that story, and and, um, and it sort of grew out of that. And uh, what I wanted to do is to stay alive. So instead of just a book and that's the end of it, uh, I want the, the whole website to actually grow, and grow not from my perspective, because I've, I've laid out my perspective, mm -hmm. but um, I want to add in other people's perspective of, of what it's like. So 
I've got online to put up there now. I've got some interviews with a couple of the Super Tramp guys, uh, a couple of the Company Rebel guys, and, uh, and, and plans to get you know, a few more stories from a few more of the artists that um, were involved uh, through that time period. It is. I mean, like I say, this is one of the, the beauty of this site is how it's still growing with all stories like this. And now there is this free content on the site and this premium content on the site. And it's quite apt that we're recording this. It's the day after Black Friday. Now, I've seen people fighting, literally fighting with each other to save a few pounds over a television or a phone or anything like this. For me, the bargain of the year is seven ninety nine for a year's subscription to this site. That's that's the Black Friday bargain right there. That's what I'm going to say. Thank you very much, sir. There, yeah. I can. It, it's true. I really mean it. I think this. It's it's if you know you, you spend whatever on a pint and a packet of crisps, and you know if you're down south, you probably you know it cost you more than that. <laughs> but for the for the sake of seven ninety nine a year, I can't. I just want to make it clear that the content you're going to get with the audio and with the video and with the stories and you know obviously you've just you've heard Richard talking to me and to give you a little flavour of some of the stuff that he's done with his life and the bands that he's worked with and the things that have happened that's not even beginning to scratch the surface of what's on this website it's it is really really good and highly recommended oh my headset fell off then <laughs> Oops. Uh, Richard, before you go, um, we're in this social media age. What yes. are the best ways that people can find and follow you online? Obviously, we've got the Road Stories website. Um, what else is there that people can follow what you do, get in touch with you maybe? Yeah, I think I've set up a Facebook page, a Road Stories Facebook page. Um, so, yeah, between the website and the Facebook page. Well, I'll give I'll give links to those. I'll put them in the podcast notes. So, you know, whatever MP3 player of choice you're listening to this on, you can have a look and the, the links will be on there so you can find Richard online. Um, it's been a pleasure. We've we've gone a little bit over the 60 minutes. We've bent the space-time continuum a little bit. Sorry but about it's, you know what, I could sit here for another hour or two at least easily. Uh, thank you so much for joining me. It's It's been a pleasure, Richard. It really has. Great stories and so lovely to chat with you. Dave, thank you very much, and my best wishes to your, your wife, Tina, too. Thank you. Thank you very much, Richard. And as always, the alarm clock goes off far too early, uh, even though we did squeeze an extra few minutes out of it, you know, and who can blame me when I'm listening to stories like that? Please, as we just said, follow Richard via his social media. Go to roadstories.co.uk. Check out all the content there. Like I said, it's constantly being updated. Um, bookmark it because it's a site to keep, that's for sure. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at 60 Minutes with, that's with a six and a zero. And also on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash 60 Minutes with, again with a six and a zero. Uh, still working on the website and hopefully that will be up in the new year with all the content that we've done so far. I will be back again um, very soon with another interview show. Will be the next one, closely followed by the monthly entertainment show with both myself, uh, Stabby and Ramrod. So, thank you for listening. I um, hope you enjoyed it, and I will see you again very, very soon. 